You're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message, continuing a series that we began uh, some weeks ago now. This is probably the fifth uh, session that we've had in this segment in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you're listening, you can join us. We invite you to grab a Bible, get that close by, and keep your eyes on that. Join us in the Gospel according to Matthew. You'll find our verses that we'll be studying together today down in verses 43 to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter number 5, beginning in verse number 43, continuing our journey through the studies of the so-called Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching His disciples, instructing them how to live in community as they serve Him and follow Him. Matthew chapter number 5, we take the Scriptures in hand and we read these words. Ye have heard that it hath been said... Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, the Lord Jesus speaking here, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Read verse 48 out loud with me if you would. Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Lord, we pray that you will help us again today to grow in your grace and knowledge, that we can be further conformed to your image. These words, Lord, can have an effect on us that if we don't understand them or if we misapply them or misinterpret them from what you intended, Lord, it can drive us to despair. But Lord, you knew exactly what we needed when you spoke these words all those years ago to those that got to hear this from your very lips that day as you sat on the hillside and your disciples that you had called came unto you and you taught them openly. You gave them such wonderful truth about the blessed life and how to find that. You gave them the blueprints to build their life accordingly around you and around your teachings and around your word. But then, Lord, you didn't hold anything back from them as you don't hold anything back from us. As we follow you, Lord, we inevitably encounter difficulty and trial along the way. And, Lord, we are called on to stand for righteousness, to make a distinction, Lord, not because we're better than anyone else, but because we found your word and did eat them, and they are unto us the source of life. It's not that we know all the answers, Lord, it's that you have given us the right way to walk in. And we've decided to follow that, and therefore, we must take a stand against things that would depart from your truth and your word. And when we do, Lord, we can expect persecution to come, but may we count that as we should and rejoice and be exceeding glad. May we understand that you're working a greater purpose, and may we take up our cross and follow you. Being salt and being light, Lord, we do ask that you would use our life to make a difference to others. That as we walk and talk, that it would all be in line with your word. And that we would be quick to get right with you any missteps we make, any shortcomings that your Holy Spirit reveals to us. 
as we continue growing, Lord. We understand the purpose of your word and the foundation that it provides for us. You didn't undo anything that Moses had written in the Old Testament. You didn't undo any of the prophets' teachings about the end times or or what's to come yet for Israel and, and all the blessings that we have through the promises given to Abraham. Lord, you haven't undone any of that. You're still working to fulfill that plan. And yet we have a place in your program here and now as disciples to bring forth fruit. But Lord, we've got to be careful how we handle your word. We can be in danger of making the same mistakes with your word that even the best people when you walked this earth, the cream of the crop of society, those that were the religious elite, those that were supposed to have known your word, made grievous errors with it and began teaching for the commandments of God, the doctrines of men. And they imposed upon your word legalistic standards that you never uttered. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to regard your word with sincerity and to learn that it's the spirit of the law, the spirit of the law that's the motivation for why we do what we do, not just the outward letter, but it's the heart change that comes from the inside out. And we look forward to your coming kingdom, Lord. As we look at your word, we have some hard things to understand, and if we miss them, we'll miss the blessing that you have for our life. As we come to these verses, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the love of the Father and that we would grow to be more like Him each day that we live. Unlock our understanding, Lord. I'll understand and I'll thank you for what you Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been centering around this theme of protecting our heart so that our testimony is protected because when that's the case, it allows us to then be able to present the gospel in meaningful ways that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Your heart is where it all begins. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. As many preachers have said before me, and and I quote them and stand on their shoulders and remind us today, guard your heart, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are all the issues of life. Jesus is encouraging us as his disciples, for those who are saved and washed by his blood, saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to learn to be more like him. He calls us today to deal with his word in a way that he would approve, to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, we also must consider the backdrop of what was going on in his day. And here is a case in point in the verses under our study. As we began to read, we read Jesus say these words, You've heard that it hath been said. He didn't say, You have read that I wrote. (laughs) Or, You read that God wrote. No, he said, You've heard that it hath been said. And this is the key movement indicator for these six illustrations from the law that he is pulling out in this point that he's making, driving his disciples to make sure their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. How can we better be better than a Pharisee? Now today, we have to condition that because when we say the term Pharisee, when I utter the word Pharisee, immediately many of you, most of you, maybe all of you, are having negative connotations come to your mind. You're thinking, Pharisee, Pharisee, those mean Pharisees. Okay, in this day and time, I don't know what would be a person in the entire community. I'm talking about 
every T is crossed, every I is dotted. Uh, nothing ever seems to go wrong, or when it does, they just know right how to fix it. And they're an upstanding person in the community. You would never see them in the front pages of some of the headlines of the atrocities that happen in the news today, ever. I mean, it just wouldn't occur because they live their life in such a way that it's, it's down the line. Now say something bad about that person. Now don't do it, okay, because you don't have good, anything good to say. My mama taught me and you shouldn't open your mouth to begin with. <laughs> but that'd be the same as what you're doing to the Pharisees because they walked the line. They were upstanding people. If, if you were a parent and had children, maybe you wanted your children to grow up, you might even dream one day that they could grow up and, and be like Pharisees such and such. This was a prestigious uh, role, a prestigious place to attain to. Not everybody could get there. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he gives his pedigree, he gives his lineage. There were certain qualifications. Now the Pharisees built much of their system off of what the scribes had done in working with the Old Testament. So they would take the law of Moses found in Exodus 20 and, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and those portions of the Torah that they elevated so highly. And the scribes would come to that and, and basically come at it the way that we say sometimes here. You've heard me say the Bible has the answers for everything we're going to face in life. Well, I get that right out of the Scriptures. That's my way of paraphrasing what Peter said, that the Scriptures give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything we need to live, God's told us about in His Word. He doesn't tell us, you know, everything under the sun. He doesn't give us all the minutia of of, uh, neuroscience and everything that we're able to unlock today. But He did give us what we need to live and operate by and to bring Him glory and to have a peaceable life about us. Not free from trouble necessarily, but we're able to be content with the things we have. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now, what the scribes would do is they would impose upon the Scripture something that's very dangerous to do. And so while God never explicitly said, you can only walk X number of miles on the Sabbath, are you with me? Okay. The scribes would say, inherently, that's in the law. It's not explicitly written, but inherently it's there, so here's the rules. You can only go this far from the temple... On, on the Sabbath day. You can only carry this much of a load. Above this is too much. You can only cook this much. Remember, they had certain things that they had to do when they gathered manna and all of that. They, could, they had to gather twice as much on Friday to cast to last over into Saturday and those kind of things. But if they kept it too long, it would grow mold and begin to stink and grow worms and all that stuff. So what the scribes did is impose upon what God had written and interpreted out of that That's the danger. They misinterpreted it. And they applied their traditions. And they imposed those on everyone else and said, if you're going to be spiritual, then you're going to abide by these inherent things that we have developed out of what God had written explicitly. So the Pharisees said, we've got this. And they lived their life in a way that, boy, you don't step over that line. For instance, why would they get so upset when here comes a man from Galilee into a synagogue one day, and there's a woman that's been bowed over, I mean, just bowed in half for decades, decades. And on one Saturday, Jesus speaks a word. And that lady's able to be healed and stands upright, and she's made whole. And the fellow officiating that Sabbath day's proceedings stopped everything dead in its tracks and was upset that Jesus had done that. Why? 
And he corrected that officiator that day, by the way. Oh, because, well, it's the Sabbath day. And it's, it was not permitted to heal on the Sabbath. Oh, as Jesus was walking one time, his disciples were hungry, so they grabbed some they grabbed some grain and they rubbed it in their hands and began to just, you know, eat because they were starving, and that's what you do. We can do that here in Colorado in the amber waves of grain that we sing about, right? You get that rye stuff and you go out there and you chafe it with your hands and you get all the shells off of it. You can actually eat that, you can grind it and make bread and those kind of things just right from the fields that grows wild here. Well, that's what the disciples were doing. They were gleaning. But the problem was it was on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to thresh on the Sabbath. And so when they took that grain and they did that, they were threshing. Oh, you remember the time that he came by the pool of Bethesda? The north side of Jerusalem, he came in and there was a man that had been there, what, uh, 38 years, if I recount correctly by John? 38 years. Not able to, to find healing. And Jesus comes through in one instance and says, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. Go thy way. Oh, everything's so fine until it's the Sabbath day. Because taking up his bed was a violation of the Sabbath. You're not to carry your couch. You're not to carry your bed. You see, go find a verse in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Genesis, anywhere in the Old Testament that says, Thou shalt not us carry us thy beddest on the Sabbathest. It's not there. But the scribes imposed it. And the Pharisees said, That's the spiritual way. And, you know, Nicodemus agreed that Jesus was a teacher come from God because no man could do these miracles except God be with him. So they had that much figured out, at least Nicodemus did, and maybe some other Pharisees that were questioning. We know of Nicodemus for sure, maybe Joseph of Arimathea. But the others began to wrestle these things in their mind and began to discount the ministry, the miracles, the Messiahship, the very divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you know, if he was from God, and if he really was what he's saying, then he wouldn't violate the Sabbath. You see how they reason it? One of the things that was a turning point for me in my spiritual growth was when I had to translate... Okay, I say that bad. I had to translate the Gospel of Mark. I got to translate it from Greek, okay? I'll put it that way for my Greek teacher's sake. Uh, I wish I could say I did better in the class. I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch of imagination, but I, I did enough to be dangerous, I suppose. As I was coming through the Gospel of Mark, doing my translation work, as rough as it was around the edges, as literal as it could be, I came to chapters 2 and 3 and 4, and I stopped dead in my tracks. And I had a little altar time with the Holy Spirit because He was working on me big time. And I began to put some things together. Here I am. I'm a seminary student. And I've got, you know, a few years of Bible college under my belt. And I'm feeling like I'm, I'm able to handle the Word of God a little bit better now than I could before I began. And I'm getting to the place where my mind's beginning to analyze things and criticize. And that's not necessarily a bad thing unless you're walking a dangerous path. But I came to Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, and I found out something occurred in the ministry of Jesus that woke me up. There was a time in Jesus' ministry when he began, he began teaching and preaching openly to the public. And all of his teachings were there for everybody to hear and see, much like what we're seeing with the Sermon on the Mount. It was open. It was broad. Anybody could come and sit as a multitude and listen to what he was teaching. The turning point came. 
when certain of the scribes and Pharisees began to blaspheme Jesus Christ. Do you remember that account? They said, well, he's just doing this by the power of Beelzebub. That's how he's able to cast out these demons, because the devil's empowering him to do it. That was their argument. And they missed the fact that Jesus is God, that he came into his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power, the right, if you will, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. They missed it. And I stopped dead in my tracks as I came to that translation because it was a turning point. After that point in the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice, Jesus no longer taught openly, publicly. He taught in parables. That's the turning point. Parables in Jesus' teaching are the difference between light and darkness. Parables are the difference between understanding the heavenly teaching and getting caught in the earthly story. Because a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I had to stop dead in my tracks because here I am. My mind's beginning to analyze things and criticize things. And what arrested me in my studies was the fact that I put myself in the scribes and Pharisees' shoes. And I thought, what if I were there alive when Jesus did these things? And my thought process went like this. <laughs> you know, if somebody stood up here today in our service and said, I am the Son of God, I'd do exactly what you just did. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, if he did it once, I might, you know, have a little laughter. But then if he presses that and begins to come back again and say, I am sent from God. And then he does these crazy things and, and all these. I began to wonder, would I not question the way that they did? Who does this guy think he is? That was a humbling moment for me. Because I don't have it all figured out. What I know, I have to keep it within the confines and the guidelines of Holy Scripture. This is the only thing that's inerrant, the only thing that is infallible. Anything outside of this is prone to decay and prone to error. But this is holy. These words from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, this is the infallible, inerrant, verbally plenary inspired word of God. And I believe that with all my heart. Now, if I believe that, then I have to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. That He has fulfilled hundreds of prophecies that nobody else could do that was given in the Old Testament. So I'm thankful that I was able to come through that with humility and say, Lord, if I would have been there that day, who knows, I might have been right there with them, ready to throw rocks at you because you're standing up saying you're God and I refuse to believe it. We have many, many people, maybe even right here in this building right now as we're meeting, many people that do not believe Jesus Christ is God. They don't believe in His deity. Muslims don't believe in His deity for sure, not according to their Koran's teachings. So this is the dividing line. What are you going to do with Jesus? Be careful that you don't wind up in the same camp as the scribes and Pharisees and say, 
How can he be? Now, that was my own personal journey. And I thought, Lord, if I would have been there, I would have been just as blind as them. What's not to say it wouldn't have been me saying, you're doing this by the power of the devil. By the power of Beelzebub, you are casting out demons. Who's not to say that it wouldn't have been coming out of my mouth? As critical as I could be and as analytical as I could be about the scriptures and then somebody standing doing this stuff, I might have been right there with them. That changed how I viewed the scribes and Pharisees from that day forward. I began to weep over their condition. I began to see them through eyes of love rather than eyes of criticism. How can they get locked into this to where they miss what's staring them right in the face? I would have been under the same danger. And as I sat, if I would have been alive in that day, sitting under the parables of Jesus, I probably would have left there scratching my head going, what in the world does that mean? Because I would have been blinded. The disciples had the privilege to ask Jesus when they didn't understand the parables. Lord, what do you mean by that? And he would sit down with them almost, almost uh, in a funny way sometimes. I, I, I kind of chuckle to myself when I read about how they would ask him, Lord, what does this parable mean? And then he would answer them and say, well, it's, I mean, the meaning's right here. It's right before your face. It's clear as day. I mean, you know, the sower's the seed, and the seed is the word of God, and, and the Son of Man, and all. And he begins to explain to them the parable of the sower and, and other parables, and But the scribes and Pharisees, they missed it all. They weren't privy to Jesus' explanation of those. And they asked him, Lord, why are you teaching in parables now? He answered them and said, really for two purposes. Number one, that those that have eyes to see and ears to hear might see and hear the truth, the heavenly truth that God would share with us. And for the second purpose, that those having ears would hear not And they, having eyes, would see not. And see through that, he even fulfilled a prophecy given by Isaiah. In that part of the purpose for parables was to blind the blasphemers. And unlock the truth for his followers, his disciples. Now, I've given you a lot of backdrop. I've almost taken my message time to do that. I want you to look at our passage here in verse 43 to 48. Jesus is going to give an antithesis, just so you can see the structure of what's going on here. He names the tradition. You have heard that it hath been said. He did not say again. Remember, he didn't say, God wrote, thou shalt, what did he say in verse 3? Love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now, God did tell the Israelites that they should love their neighbor. And you can read about that in the Torah. But I challenge you to go find this second phrase anywhere in the Old Testament as it's written right here. Hate thine enemy. God never once that I can find told the Israelites to actually hate their enemy, not in in these certain terms. Now, there's certain teachings that he gave about hating evil, which could lead to the conclusion that, well, if you're going to hate the evil, then you need to hate the one who's perpetrating the evil. So that would be your enemy. You need to hate your enemy. But that's an end run, you see. That's That's a conclusion based off of a principle That's found in the Old Testament. That's not what God said. That's what they derived from it. And the scribes began teaching, and the Pharisees began upholding that it's okay if you hate your enemy. Because they're our enemy, they're against the things of God, and it's okay to hate them. Jesus says, let me correct your thinking. Because it's the spirit of the law, not simply the letter that God's concerned with, what's your motivation? What's happening on the inside 
He goes on to say in verse 43, after he exposes the tradition about loving neighbors and hating enemies, he gives a mandate. He says, I say unto you, love your enemies. Not only that, let's go above and beyond that. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's quite a list. How many of you right now, you can envision an enemy before your eyes right now? You know you have an enemy, and you can see them right now. I don't know about you, but sometimes that's hard for me. I don't like to have enemies. I try, try not to have enemies. Okay, now I've got some faces coming before my mind. All right, Lord, please let me pray for them. You see, there are people... I want you to notice here in the text, first off, before I go any further. Pay close attention to the distinction between singular and plural as you read it. In verse 42... You'll notice Jesus said, Give to him that asketh thee, singular. And from him that would borrow of thee, singular, turn not thou, singular, away. And verse 43, he goes right back to the plural. Ye have heard that it hath been said. Keep that in mind because he's going to make distinction throughout here with the group of his disciples versus how an individual disciple responds in that situation. Maybe you underline the, the pronouns there, ye's and these. Pay attention to that. It will help you as you read it. He says, but I say unto you, plural, love your enemies, plural. So context establishes for us who the real enemy in this case would be. It's not just somebody that's thy enemy, no, it is the enemy of God's disciples, the enemy of God's church, the enemy of His followers. That helps us a lot, doesn't it? Because now all those faces disappear, maybe one or two of them later, it's somebody that's doing something against the church. Here's something to pay attention of, pay attention to, take note of. Historically, society... We're Christians, I'm going back only to the church now, okay? Back to the book of Acts in the first century. Ever since Christ died, was buried for our, our sins, rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Ever since that occurred, His disciples have been on the earth, and His church has been here. Look historically, every time, whether it's His, his people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, or the church. Look at every time you can think of in human history that either Israel or the church has been persecuted by either the state or some other enemy, as we would put it. Has it worked out well in time for that persecutor? Not once. And it never will. Because God watches out for His own. So you see, He says love your enemies. At this time, uh, even right now as he's writing this, there are certain leaders in Rome that are imposing upon people things that ought not to be done, grievance kind of issues. Now remember, this ties into the larger context of this whole Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Because he's talking about the law, he's talking about legal situations, so the same thing that applies to you not being a doormat for somebody. You know, God's not telling you here that you just need to give your code every time somebody asks you and, 
you know, that person that's maybe living an alcoholic lifestyle comes and asks you for money and, uh, and then, you know, uses a scripture and says, well, you've got to give it. No, God never once told you anywhere in His Word to enable someone to go and buy more booze. You know, they say they're going to go get food with it, but you know really deep down inside what they're really going to do with that money. You're not helping them at all. And that's not what being a follower of Christ is. No, when in the name of Jesus Christ is at stake for His testimony, in these kind of contexts, when we protect the cause of Christ, that's where these things apply. So then apply that now to these verses. In the context of who our enemies are as a church, does the church have enemies? Yeah. I wish it weren't so. But not everybody agrees with what we're doing here today. I wish that weren't so. There were people that just blew right by our booth yesterday because they saw Baptist on it, and that's all they needed. Nope, I'm staying far away from that place. Not just Baptist, okay, other churches too, mind you. So, do churches have enemies? Yeah. So what do we do about it? God never told us that it was okay to hate them. That's the wrong approach. The Pharisees would take an approach like that, though, and they would, they would say it's okay for you to hate them that, that are your enemies. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemies. To them, that was okay. That was an okay standard. But God never once imposed that. He says, Jesus goes on to say, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. I think of David when I think of that. You remember when he was walking and, and he had that, that man that just railed on him up one side and down the other, and so much so that his, his uh, buddies with him was like, you want me to go take care of him, David? I'll go, I'll go take care of him right now. Remember that? And David said, no, let him be. I, don't, I wonder, you know, maybe David prayed for that man. What a story. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. But what's the real motive? So he exposed the tradition. And then he gives a mandate to love them, to pray for them, to bless them. What's the motivation? Well, the motivation is in verse 45, to be God's children. Remember, the forces of nature fall on both of them. The just and the unjust. God's good to everyone. Hate your enemy. You don't find that in the Old Testament. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this, and I would agree with him, I think, here. Perhaps it can be best put like this. If you do not accept that principle which says that all these imprecations, he was quoting the, the Psalms and precatory Psalms, praying about you know, enemies and those things that you read about in the Psalms, trying to balance that with what Jesus says, love your enemies here. How do you balance those things? That was his argument. He says, if you do not accept that principle which says that all these imprecations are always judicial in character, then at once you're involved in an insoluble problem with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Here he's telling us we are to love our enemies... And then Dr. Jones encourages us to turn to Matthew chapter 23 and listen to Jesus, the same Jesus, thundering out woes upon the heads of the Pharisees. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones posed this question, how do you reconcile these two things? Love your enemies, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. How do you balance that? How do you reconcile the exhortation to love your enemies with these woes pronounced upon the Pharisees and all the other things that he said with respect to them? Or indeed, let us look at it this way. Here our Lord tells us to love our enemies because he says that's exactly what God does. His argument is he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. When you love your enemies, you're doing exactly what God does. 
following in your father's footsteps. That fits the argument for what Jesus is making, I, I think. And this is exactly what God does, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the, on, and the good, sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And I underline this. There are people who have foolishly interpreted this to mean that the love of God is universal, absolutely. And that it does not matter whether a man sins or not. We can go right out here, take a right, go down a few blocks, cross over a few intersections, take a left, and you'll see a group of people down there that are teaching that this morning. Right here in Broomfield. That's just one that I can think of right off the cuff here. I'm sure there's others. Because, you know, God is love. Well, everybody's going to heaven because God is love. That's the argument. God is love. He can never punish. But Dr. Lloyd-Jones went on to say this, and I believe he is absolutely correct because he's getting it from the Scriptures. He says that is to deny the teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. Amen, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Rest his soul. He's with the Lord now. I don't agree with everything that Dr. Lloyd-Jones wrote and said, but I agree with this. To say that is to to deny the teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. These are the examples he gave. God punished Cain. And he also punished the ancient world in the flood. He punished the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He punished the children of Israel when they were recalcitrant. Then the whole teaching of the New Testament from the lips of Christ Himself is that there is to be a final judgment. That finally... All the impenitent are going to a lake of fire, to a place where, Jesus says, their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. So if you do not accept this judicial principle, you must say there's a contradiction running through not only the teaching of of the Bible, but the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Love your enemies. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. How do you balance that? The wrong conclusion to come to is that, well, God loves everybody. It doesn't matter if anybody sins. Everybody's going to heaven anyway. That's universalism, and that's a lie right out of the pit of hell. Yea, hath God said. Yes, He did say. Their worm dieth not. The fire is not quenched. Yes, Jesus did say. The rich man died. And in hell, He lift up His eyes, being in torments. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. We preach as dying men to a dying world. And all of it hangs upon the cross of Jesus Christ. So the way to resolve the problem is we recognize there's a judicial element to what Jesus is teaching here. Some observations that I would make with you. Tell me if I'm reading the scriptures correctly. (laughs) You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt like thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Like your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Did I read that correctly? What word did I change? God did not, Jesus did not tell you, you have to like them. How many of you know there's a difference between loving someone and liking them? 
liking them, liking somebody either comes naturally or it doesn't. You like certain people because, well, that just comes naturally. Something about them, there's an appeal. You, You like them. There's other people now. Okay, be honest, we don't like. <laughs> Many of you are here because you like, you know, how I sound. I don't know why you do, but okay. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for putting up with me. And there are other things, you know, how can somebody sit under somebody who's completely monotone and just you know, I think about sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's said that that sermon was read by Jonathan Edwards kind of monotonously and, and that the, the conviction was so heavy on people. I guarantee you it wasn't because they liked how he was reading his manuscript. You understand the point. God is not telling you here that you have to like those that are treating you in horrendous ways. You don't even have to like what they're doing to you. But you can, and you must, and you have to learn to love them regardless of whether you like them or not. Are you with me? This means yes. Okay. You might not like certain policies that our state is enacting. I don't know about you, but I about had a nervous breakdown last week when I got the mail. Some of you might know what I'm referring to because you got the same piece of mail and had the same reaction I did. <laughs> and I opened this thing up and it you know, had this, the seal of our state on it. And you know, they're explaining to me in there just a couple of things that they want to do that I remember. You know, This was coming down the pike because of last session. Okay, so I read through that and I said, okay, here's basically what you're telling me you want to do. You want to, you want to get rid of Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. And you want to remove any restraints that the people of Colorado have put on you to get more money and keep more money. And then on top of that, you want to tax me more. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. With love in my heart, I laid that manuscript down and I just said, no. And I walked away and I moved on with my life and I didn't let it debilitate me. Now, maybe you disagree with me. Maybe you think our state should have uh, no restraints on how much money it can keep that it takes from you and, and that our state can take more money from you later on to pay for all these things they're dreaming about doing. Maybe you're in agreement with all that. I'm not, and I'm frank with that. I'm not talking about the scripture. I know I'm talking about my opinion. You're free to disagree with me. I respect your opinion, and I would just ask that you respect mine when it comes to these things. I'm using that as an illustration because I don't like to think about the state taking more from me when they're already taking how much already? I don't like that. But does it mean that I shouldn't love Senator Garcia? Now, this man stood in the well many times last session and actually held a balance that kept things within reason. Now, there are things that he did allow that I would not like and I would disagree with, but the man had respect. He had a rapport. He conducted himself with dignity, and I pray for Senator Garcia, and I pray that you do too, and everyone that sits on either side of the aisle. As one person said, it's not about politics. It's not about donkeys, and it's not about elephants. It's about the Lamb, and it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are things that 
the elephant's team, so to speak, has done that I'm like, what in the world? And the donkey's team, and, and I'm saying, what in the world? No, we need to remember there is a guiding principle of Scripture. And whichever is going to align with that is going to have my blessing and have my favor because it's in line with Scripture. Plain and simple. It's not about party. It's about principle. Now, I don't like the direction our state is going, but it doesn't mean that I can't love and pray for people who maybe they can't even see the bondage that it's going to bring. As a pastor, my heart breaks because I look down through the corridors uh, kind of preemptively in a way, and I think, how many more people are going to sit down across a desk from me with a broken life because they're locked in bondage now that the state almost encouraged them to take up all these vices? Why? Why is it ever good for any society to open up and have full-strength beer? I mean, my soul. You can get it in any, any convenience store now. Let's just take all of the restraints off, okay? Let's just make things easier. Why do we need dispensaries on every corner in Colorado? Why do we need to allow dispensaries in Broomfield? Our kids already have enough trouble in the school system with their friends and things that they can get even just right around here. If you want to know what that kind of stuff does to a town, go look at somewhere like Trinidad. Broomfield, I'm praying for Broomfield. Because we have until 2021 to keep that stuff out of here. And if we don't get city council on board on this thing, five, what's it going to look like five or ten years from now? Broomfield will not be the same. It will not. And that hurts me. Yeah, we're going to have more opportunities to minister. And, and if I go to city council meetings and things, there's probably going to be people that will stand up in that room and really hate me. And really not like what I have to say because I come from scriptural principle. Not that I have it all figured out, but that I'm just saying there's a right way and a wrong way. And, and this is leaning the wrong way. To open up all of these things and, and, and to just make it easier for people to be immoral and, and drunken and, and not living in sobriety. And, and to make it easier for people to sin and sin and sin. And the eyes are never full and the fire continues to burn and it's never quenched. And people get to the end of themselves and they wonder, what is life all about anyway? Maybe we can step in somewhere along the way and point them to Jesus and say... There is a better way. Just because it's legal doesn't mean you have to do it. We've known that for a long time, haven't we? Just because you can doesn't mean you should and that you ought to. But I'll tell you, lust. Lust is a driving factor that shackles so many. And we must help them get free from that. Well, I've taken my time here with you this morning. Jesus didn't say you have to like them. But he did mandate you need to learn to love them. This is an act of your will. It's not going to come natural to you, but you can learn to love them. Love is giving. It's in spite of who the person is. You give in spite of who they are because there's a greater purpose working. There's a motive. The reason we love them is we're trying to get them to be like God. I'm not trying to get them to be like me. I'm trying to get them to be like God. And I love them. And I continue to do good to them. All the while believing that one day, what I go through and what I put up with here and how I pray. You know, one preacher said it this way, it's really hard to be mad at somebody you're praying for, amen? 
I pray for them and I give even when they don't deserve it. In spite of who they are, I keep giving. Why? To try to point them to Christ, knowing that one day there will be a reward. That God will bring the reckoning at the end of it all. So if I'm going to be teleos, if I'm going to be perfect, if I'm going to be mature, if I'm going to give all of me to God, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, if I'm going to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, I think this hymn puts it well when it says, Edward Denny's hymn, Speaking of Jesus, he says, Thy foes might hate, despise, revile. Thy friends unfaithful prove. Unwearied, unwearied in forgiveness still. Thy heart could only love. Jesus, suspended between earth and heaven, from the cross uttered those words, Father, forgive them. Who? His enemies the enemies of of all things holy, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As we treat others, that should never depend upon what they say or what they do to us. As we do good to them that hate you, it means we are benevolent towards them despite action against us, continuously benevolent. It means that we're going to take it a step further, not just do good, not just bless them, we are going to pray for them sincerely that they find God because that is their ultimate need, to be right with Him. You know, it can be hard to do this. I'm out of time, as I mentioned. I'll close with this last illustration to try to drive it all home. It can be difficult to envision how Jesus' teaching on loving your enemies might be lived out in its often messy particulars, one writer put it. We see a powerful example of love of the enemy in the work of Dr. C. Timothy Floyd. Floyd, he was an orthopedic surgeon. He tells about his 2003 experience as a member of the U.S. Army's 934th Forward Surgical Team, the FST, in Iraq. Listen to what this orthopedic surgeon writes, and I quote, The FST is located within 10 kilometers of active battle area. We treated wounded at camps near Karbala, Baghdad, Balad, Bakaba, and Tikrit. We often arrived to take wounded at base just after the Air Force and Army Rangers cleared it, but before other units arrived. Most of the people we treated... They were not coalition forces. We treated Iraqi army. We treated Republican Guard, special Republican Guard, foreign terrorists, unfortunate civilians caught in crossfire. As an orthopedic surgeon, he says, we treated them all. Every condition that came into our tent. Military medical doctrine calls for the humane and ethical treatment of all persons wounded in battle, regardless of politic, regardless of deed, regardless of ideology. Here's an orthopedic surgeon that one day stood and took an oath, the Hippocratic Oath, 
and hear his testimony, he says, I lined up with that. It didn't mean that he liked everybody that was on his table, but he worked on them. As Jesus says, love your enemies, he's not telling you you've got to like everybody that comes within your sphere of influence. But I'm telling you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, work on them. They need Him. Do you understand it's life or death? They're going to die and bust hell wide open if they die without Jesus Christ. And we fight a spiritual battle. Pray for them. Pray for them. Sincerely. Genuinely. Grow to the place where you can exhibit the grace of God. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He is good to all. And to all that call upon Him, He will be their Savior. And so they may or may not accept what we do in love, but it doesn't change our perspective. So I encourage you, as you go out into the community here, thank God that you don't have to deal with what the orthopedic surgeon did in his tent. But also be attentive and be aware of all the spiritual casualties that are around you. So many times I feel like I'm walking through a war zone and I'm just looking for signs of life. Maybe they were hurt by other Christians. Maybe they were hurt by another church. Maybe they were hurt by them own selves and their own lusts. Maybe they were hurt in a different capacity. Maybe they're just hurt because they've never found Jesus and they're still lost and dead in their sins. Can you see the wounded? Can you see the need? If you can, then you'll be more moved to your knees to pray for them. And so we close with the words of Christ today. And I encourage you, love. Love your enemies. The love of God, it can't be contained. We can do this if we'll let Christ do it through us.